Welcome to Not Going Quietly, the podcast where we inspire growth, beat down biases and get into all sorts of good trouble with co-hosts Jonathan Beale and Britt East. No topic is off limits as we explore ways to help everyone leap into life with a greater sense of clarity, passion, purpose and joy. So get ready to join us for some courageous conversation because Not Going Quietly starts right now. Hey everyone, welcome to Not Going Quietly, the podcast for outraged optimists and heartbroken healers all over the world, where we surface life's searing truths in the name of radical togetherness. I'm your host, Britt East, and my co-host, Jonathan Beale, is on sabbatical, so unfortunately you won't have his wonderful presence today. However, I've got an amazing guest for you and I cannot wait for you to meet her. So let's bring her in. Her name is Laura Hall, and she was born on the San Francisco Peninsula to a closeted gay father and a straight mother during the post-World War II baby boom. She came of age during the rebellious 60s, just as the summer of love kickoffed in San Francisco. Laura, I'm so jealous already. Ever the curious middle child, at the age of 24, she asked her father if he'd ever been unfaithful to her mother. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Little did she know how her world would turn with this response. She received her BA and MLA in landscape architecture from UC Berkeley and practiced community design for two decades. She currently works as a community involvement coordinator for the Environmental Protection Agency. Laura lives with her husband in San Francisco. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Hi, Brett. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, me too. You have such a unique story and you've given us a real gift with your book. Your book is called Affliction, Growing Up with a Closeted Gay Dad. And I have to admit, I was a little apprehensive about reading it. You know, it's so easy for writers outside of the queer community to inadvertently cause harm even when writing about us with the best of intentions because you lack the lived experience of a gay man it would be easy for you to unintentionally bolster homophobic tropes and stereotypes in the telling of your father's story but what i love so much about your book is your loving tender humility you never once try and get in the head of your father or anyone else you remain grounded in the telling of your story, even as it intersects the story of your father and your mother and others. You never attempt to fix anything or psychoanalyze anyone. You celebrate everyone with the messy awe and wonder that comes naturally when fully considering the scope of a human life. And I think it's a triumph. But it's one thing to write a manuscript and a very different thing to publish a book. So, Laura, my question to you is, how did this book come about and why in the world did you decide to share it with the world? I ne- I had no intention of this. I, I had never, never thought about it until about 10 years ago. And um, it was just a random o- occurrence. I was working in downtown San Francisco and I was walked by a bookstore, uh, bookstore on my way to work. And I was just feeling this urge to write about something. I love writing. I won writing contests in grammar school. And I just, I had gotten away from that. And I thought, I'm just going to look for a writing book (laughs) and just start reading it. And I bought it. And then on my way home from work, taking uh, the train home, I was reading it. It was a crowded train. And I, um, there was an elderly man behind me. It's interesting. Like he was almost my dad's age. 
and um, he was looking over my shoulder, which is something people don't do in the trains. You know, there's a certain amount of respect people have when it's crowded. But he said, he said, oh, do you know that author teaches writing workshops in her house in San Francisco? Oh, my gosh. And she was a longtime columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle yeah. that my father loved. He would mm. always send me copies of her articles. And so when I got um, I got home, I signed up for her course. And the very first day, the very first 10 minutes, she um, gave us a writing prompt. And it was called my father's clothes and i thought well i could write about that because my dad had gorgeous clothes and his closet was so perfectly lined up by color by style and just beautiful materials that he and you know that he bought and tailored clothes he bought in san francisco where he worked and within about less than a minute mine turned into my father's closet and so I was describing his closet, but then it hit me, my father's closet. Wow. And that's where the story was born. It was born in five minutes. <laughs> and I, I never had any intention, but oh I certainly gosh. loved my father. I loved my family. And um, it just poured out of me. It really did. <laughs> what an amazing story. I mean, all the synchronicity in that story. It's just astonishing. It's like a higher power was just pulling all the threads for you and your divine guidance, like leading you each step of the way. You know, I, I, I read your book really fast and then I kind of reread it slowly thinking through the various sections and I, and kind of examining my own feelings um, as I read it and, and, and then thinking through as a writer, how you, how you pull the various threads. And, you know, I thought that in your book, part of what you describe of course, is your father's coming out story. And I'm purposely not going to give away any spoilers and just talk generally. But in, in many ways, this book is your coming out story as well. I mean, it, you, the single thing that I think you did that was so beautiful is that it's your story. You, you know, like I said earlier, you're not trying to speak on behalf of others. You're, you're describing your experience. And by virtue of doing that, of course, you reveal details about your life and your family, but they're as you experience them. So it's your coming out story as well, not only as the daughter of a gay dad, but in many other aspects of your life as well. And I got to thinking, well, perhaps you're still coming out in various ways in your life. Like maybe we never stop coming out, even if we're straight coming out is not exclusively a gay or queer experience. And so maybe you're still coming out in various ways of your life as you meet new people or reveal aspects of your life you've never previously disclosed or you've always kept private. All these years later, I guess my question is, how would you describe your coming out experience and having shared such personal details about your life with the world? Well, there's a certain... Um... People would describe me as this, I have this naivety. I, I really have no fear of just opening up and speaking the truth um, or my truth or my experiences. Um, it's it's just not hard at all. I know it is. I think, you know, I, had, I did have a very loving, kind parents and we were always encouraged to be open and share everything. They were interested in what we had to say. And 
I, I think I was always sort of the innocent child of the four of us. Like I just had rarely had it. I don't have any problem telling my truths or my experiences or my, my faults. Um, it wasn't hard at all. I know that might sound a little in, <laughs> different than most people, but um, no, it wasn't hard at all. And I think it's because there, there was so much love in our family and the people were so kind, you know, I, and that I would never have any reason to write anything unkind anyway, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now I don't want people to think that your book is um, some sanitized leave it to beaver Disney kind of life story, even though you have this natural gift of the sense of naivete and childlike wonder and openness about you, like you, like you attributed to the, the loving support of your family, you tell a full story and you tell a rich story and all the ups and lows um, of a family life. And I was thinking like, you know, I was just uh, a f- couple months ago in the middle of the South America desert in South America, one of the least populous populated places on the planet. And somebody stopped me and knew me from my book. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, um, okay. And you have these weird, surreal moments like, what did I say? What did I write? Oh my God, should I be embarrassed? Like how much did I reveal? I mean, I, for some reason, my brain doesn't necessarily first go to like the space of like honor and wonder and like, oh, that's so cool. I go to like, oh shit, what did I discuss? <laughs> you know, how embarrassed should I be in this moment? And and so, but it doesn't seem like you have that, do you? It seems like you're saying you're fine with everybody. You're kind of an open book and you're and you're thrilled to tell your story. You didn't feel any sense of, of um, overexposure. Well, I have to um, say one thing is that um, some of, when my coworkers learned I had written a book, um, I sh- I did, I asked them if they, I would bring one to them for them to read if they would like, and then afterwards I thought, wow, now my coworkers will know everything yep. about me. Yep. And so I did have that one moment, but then I thought. There's nothing to feel ashamed of, yeah, or yeah. you know. But I I, you know, it. I do reveal a lot of details, as you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's such a healthy, grounded response. And you know, I, I know from straight people in my life, it's one thing to love and accept your queer family member. It's another thing to come out about it and tell the people in your faith community, your place of employment, whatever that you have a queer child, a brother or father or whatever like that. Was there any apprehension? Is that part of what you were alluding to with your coworkers reading where you, you weren't nervous about them finding out your dad was gay? No, not at all. I was nervous about them learning how many times I'd been married (laughs) 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 because I started very young. (laughs) No. And you know, I, I, again, I grew up a child of the sixties, the Bay area. Yeah always like fighting for social causes, marching, yeah. you know, anti-war, civil yeah. rights through Golden Gate Park. And, you know, as time went on, I just felt more like I wanted to share my dad's story. Mm. I wanted to, and I, I'll get a little teary probably, but um, I wanted to do it for him. Mm. And um, yeah. And actually, you know, there are a lot of older gay men in the Castro. We live, you know, just one neighborhood away 
from the Castro District in San Francisco, and a lot of them are very lonely, and they led really difficult lives, like my dad. Many were closeted, or their maybe their children um, abandoned them, or you know they have no children, they have no family, and they sit on the benches. And my husband and I drive through there at least two or three times a week, and I always look at those men on the benches, mm. and I thought. If I can give them some love, you know, like I'm the child, I'm, I could be one of their children, child, mm. children. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had great love for my father and, um, and I could feel it for them too. Mm. Yeah. I just had a lot of motivation from that perspective, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but never once was I nervous about saying my dad was gay. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Really touching. I'm, sitting here pinching myself so I don't cry as well. So there might be a lot of tears on this episode. That's totally okay. You know, your book is such a rare and precious gift because at least as seen through the lens of the queer community, it can actually help us understand our own journeys. And I encourage queer people to read this book as well. It's really for everybody. You tell a full story. Sure, the 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 tip of the spear is growing up with a closeted gay dad, but it's really a story of a family and and you in a coming of age story for yourself. And but as queer people, in, in part of your story, I think a lot of us will see ourselves reflected in the eyes of those who love us. Because we spend so much time um, as a matter of necessity in in introspection and that's why i think a lot of gay men in particular can can um be deemed as um selfish self-interested self-involved because as a trauma response we're getting to know ourselves um for the first time at whatever age um we come come out and coming out as a continual journey but um and and so a lot of us don't necessarily have time to think through the consequences of what it costs straight people to love a gay person. And I think your book can help stoke curiosity and empathy from the queer community and, and our family's journeys, our friends' journeys. And I wonder, Laura, how your love changed and your relationship changed with your father after he came out about his sexual orientation to you. Good question. Um, I was always... Um, connected from my father from my earliest memory I, th- I think we're wired similarly or so- similarly or something um, but I always had an eye looking out for him I couldn't wait till he got home from work um, I we spoke the same language he taught me how to make crafts in the 60s like macrame and <laughs> Hearings. He, he had me recite poetry practicing for school we had a really great relationship and, you know, he's the only father I ever had. I The other fathers on our block where we live, they were all very different. I mean, I wasn't feeling judgmental, but, you know, they'd go fishing or hunting or to sports on the weekends, um, roughhouse with their kids. And my dad was nothing like that. And um, I, you know, trying to think I was just so shocked when he came out to me <laughs> and maybe I, sh- I shouldn't have been but I had no you know no parameters to I mean a lot of it is like generalization about gay men you know he he loved fine art he'd take us to museums and musicals and um 
garden shows and he did all the landscaping. He bought all our clothes, which were, by the way, they were gorgeous. And um, which is, you know, it sounds stere stereotypical, um, but uh, no, when I just, <laughs> what was your question? <laughs> no, that's okay. I want to, I, I actually want to pause before we get back to my original question, because um, you brought up a lot of good stuff. Um, stereotypes exist for reasons. And there's a lot of us who have those attributes that your father described, maybe a natural bent towards the arts and towards a certain personal refinement and elegance and creativity. A lot of guys don't. There's no single way to be gay or queer or bi or pan or, or whatever your orientation is. And you're describing your father as he was and has, as you experienced him. And that's absolutely valid. But there might be listeners who are thinking, well, I'm not like that or my friends aren't like, that's totally cool as well. Um, there's no one way to be gay. Um, my question really oh. to you was, I mean, look, it's as a reader of your book, you do such a good job of personal reflection, introspection, and then making that explicit on the page for the audience that it was easy to kind of be like, what do you mean you didn't know? But when it's your life, I mean, I well know, I didn't know I was gay until I knew. And so it's like when it's your life and all the messages, the pressures of straight supremacy are pressing down on you and, and, and forcing <clears throat> queer people to live on the margins of society, especially back then, to live undiscovered lives, to, um, to remain in the closet, to avoid telling anybody their personal truths, much less living them. It's, it's no surprise you didn't know. And so aside from the shock and awe of that moment, as we reveal ourselves, especially these deep core truths to one another, I can't help but think our relationships are inevitably changed. And that knowledge alone, seeing him in a new light for years and years, um, how did that change your love for him, your relationship with him, um, knowing that new information? I just, I've always been a curious child and I just wanted to know more. At first I was just like, <laughs> I asked him if he'd ever been unfaithful to my mother. Yeah. I did not expect that response that he gave me. And I was like, Oh really? <laughs> you know, that's, that's as deep as I got. And then I just, I just asked him questions for the next, let's see, that was in 1975. So, and he died in 2008. So for the rest of that time, I was asking him questions mm -hmm. and I was the one child that he told the stories to. And mm -hmm. I do feel a certain responsibility for that to share them. Um, I just, I always loved my father. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was confused at times. Sometimes it was hard because, you know, secrets are so problematic in families. And my bro I didn't know if my mother knew that mm -hmm. I knew. And then we didn't, he didn't, she didn't want my brother to know. And it was just very complicated. That the was the hard world. part. You know, I just, I actually pushed really hard for a family um, therapy se session mm. in our living room. Like, could we just all get together with someone mm. who could help us out here? But um, not everyone would agree to that. So we never did. I always had hoped we would. Yeah. It's impossible to know, but do you think he would have ever come out to you had you not asked that really searing question about his faithfulness to your mother? I don't know, because he was very proper, not mm -hmm. conservative, but he was 
he was very careful with his children about what he told them. You know, he didn't want to give us too much. Um, he was a very mindful person. You mm. asked him a question, he would always take a breath, and then he'd answer in very complete uh, answers. Um, never pushy, never pushed anything on us at all. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that if he would. But mm. we just, you know, as he got older and my, then my husband and I took care of him, um, we just got even closer mm. and had some really incredible moments at his end of life. Yeah. Mm. That's you know, I did think of one thing. I'm going off topic maybe, but yeah. um, you asked me, like, what did I, you know, how things have maybe changed since I found out he was gay and what have I learned about myself? I don't think you worded it that way, but I was uh, working at my job. And I made a mistake on something, you know, just an administrative mistake. Mm. And I was really beating myself up. And I thought, where does, I asked myself, like, I've always been that way. I want straight A's. I want, you know, all this. I said, okay, so where does that come from? My parents were kind. They never criticized us. I, and but I remember that little um, essay was written called The Best Little Boy in the World. Mm -hmm. Did you read? And, you know, I read that and I um, I cried through the whole essay because <laughs> that was my dad. Everything he did was like mm -hmm. he couldn't make a move that might reveal who he might be. Mm -hmm. Right. Like he just had to be so contained mm -hmm. all his life to make sure he didn't make one tiny mistake so that someone might find out. Right. And um, so anyway, those are the kinds of things that keep unfolding for me as time goes by. Yeah, it's amazing. The, the ripple effects of whether it's queer culture or in this case, what I would actually kind of def call like the um, residue of the closet of, of, of wearing a mask. And and sometimes that can work in your favor, like maybe you, you're really successful in your career because you have those tendencies that you picked up from your father who's closet, or maybe it causes you pain, like in the situation you described. But it's, it's amazing, all the ripple effects. And one of the things I love about your book so much is the the wonder and sense of awe you express about the unasked questions and the undisclosed information that we take to our graves and all the things that none of us will ever know the depths of our partners hearts our siblings hearts our our spouses our parents hearts that just go either unplumbed or undisclosed and the beauty and like the tragic beauty of that and the um the almost creed occur of like the urgency of finding moments of to have to nurture those moments of relatedness and to ask questions um, and to find points of connection. It's, you, you make it so obvious how dire that is. Yeah. You know, this one thing I constantly tell my daughter is, honey, ask me all the questions now. And, <laughs> you know, well, ask whatever you want. I, there's, I have nothing to hide. I yeah. will share everything. And she goes, Mom, I already know all the answers. You've already <laughs> told me everything. I said, you know, when I'm gone, you, you'll remember things you wish you would yeah. have asked. <laughs> she goes, no, I know everything, Mom. I'm good. <laughs> how, how does she feel about your book and all this information being out there in the world? Oh, she's so proud of me. 
Oh, she good. loved her grandfather so yeah. much. And uh, he used to take care of her during the summer. She was on a, um, uh, oh, I, I have so many thoughts that go through my mind, but she was on that six weeks on, three weeks off school. It was like experimentals um, when she was little and, and I was working. So um, I would take her down to grandma and grandpa's house. And um, she spent a lot of time with, with my father. And, um, and it's interesting because um, she told the, her daughters when they were, oh, like maybe in their first year of high school that their grandfather, great grandfather was gay. And it was like nothing to them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, one time I was back visiting them when they were living back East and my granddaughter really wanted me to watch Glee, that TV show, yeah, which is so awesome. <laughs> and uh, she wanted me to watch it with her, which I did. And at the end of it, she goes, Grandma, that's what she talks, Grandma, <laughs> um, I know why Papa, who she called her grandfather, I know why Papa stayed in the closet. And I said, you do? And she goes, yeah. He, he wanted to live. Oh, gosh. I know. Sorry. <laughs> that gets uh, me every you got time, me. too. <laughs> but she was like 12, 13, mm. you know? I know. Yeah, you so got me. So the younger people, you know, mostly are pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was thinking about um, other sides of your story that, maybe take a back seat at first glance um, to, the, to the title of the book and that many people lived in mixed marriages in all sorts of ways, whether it's a mixture of races or ethnicities, gender orientations, sexual orientations, backgrounds, all sorts of things. And I mean, you could even say that just about all marriages involve some sort of blending and mixing of identities. Yet when a marriage involves a mix of sexual orientations, we might presume a certain level of incompatibility or desire yeah. discrepancy, but that's not necessarily true. Like for maybe think maybe one partner in a mixed orientation marriage is bisexual or pansexual. They could be equally attracted to people of opposite sexes or other all sorts of sexes, et cetera. Um, and so it's really easy to stereotype and, and make assumptions. Or, or maybe even one partner identifies as straight, but regularly experiences same-sex desires. I'm telling you, that happens a lot. And so even when one partner in a mixed orientation marriage might identify as gay, Desire and love are a messy business. They involve the depths and the breadth of the human heart. And like I was saying a few minutes ago, people rarely reveal all of themselves to anyone, especially their children. So we're often left to guess and wonder as outsiders. And Laura, my question to you is, what surprises about your father's journey and your journey surfaced over the years together and even since his death? Well, one thing I... I learned after his death and my mother had died two years before him was that I assumed that my father was unhappy being in the marriage and that, um, you know, he was 
repressed in some way because he felt he had to stay. But towards the end of his life, it, I, what he would talk about he, is how much, like he when he was in assisted living uh, facility the last year of his life, and it was right near our house, and he said that, <laughs> he goes, I think your mother would just be really proud of how I decorated this. <laughs> And the thing about my mother is she loved him so completely from the moment she set eyes on him yeah. when she was 17 years old. Yeah. She ne no matter that she found out he was gay, nothing ever changed for her. And um, I, I didn't realize the depth of their love for each other until after they were both gone. Because I was always thinking, oh, poor mom, poor dad. They didn't see themselves that way, Brett. Right. And that surprises me, and it honors me, too, as their yeah. child, you know? Yeah. Your book is going to help so many people. I can't wait for more people to continue to read it. Because, like you're saying, it's so easy to jump to those conclusions. They're perfectly logical, given our cultural frames that, that we do. We're also busy and tired. We don't necessarily have time to think through all the nuanced nuances of everybody's journeys and 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 get curious and empathetic and so it's really easy to just sweep past that and just to make assumptions that oh people are miserable and you know maybe some people are but but from what i know of love and especially long-term relationships is that there's lots of ups and downs and love is not just a isn't isn't just a singular thing even romantic yeah. love much less when you talk about the pure joy of companionship. And so I think that's one of the things people will come away from your book is the the richness of lives well lived, even with tight constraints, even with brutal societal forces that warped the contours of their lives. There was still so much love and joy and happiness. It's a rich tapestry, a rich portrait of a family that you paint. And um, I think that's going to open a lot of people's eyes. Um, have you have you heard any feedback from um, maybe other straight people in your life that were had similar surprises about what it's like to to grow up with a closeted dad? Yeah, I have a whole group of uh, women um, of all generations. For years, we actually met in my living room um, because we felt we were all alone. You know, like. And we all spoke the same language, like, but their fathers were mostly, they had, they would move out and then they would have a roommate or they would, mm. you know, all this language that I never heard, <laughs> the roommate. <laughs> and, um, I, uh, I don't know anyone else with my story. Oh, wow. I can say that. Yeah. yeah. It's a really tender story. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, the last words my parents said to each other, um, when it, it was just right before my mother died, <laughs> like eight hours, and my father, oh, it's in the book, but he said, um, cause I was wondering what would the end, their end be like, you know, I was yeah. so sad. And, like, oh, 
And he came lumbering down the hall. At that point, he was kind of hunched over and he was like 89 by then and with his cane. And he walked into the her bedroom and sat down and um, he said, I'm so glad you said yes. Ugh. And that was, I know, I know. I just, and um, this is when I, that's what really cemented it for me. Like, mm. And then her reaction was, I'd do it all, I'd do it again. Mm. And, um, and he was hard of hearing. <laughs> so he said, <laughs> maybe, or maybe he couldn't believe what he heard, <laughs> but uh, she had, he had her repeat it. And I thought, you know, the O. Henry story, like, you know, the love is so strong that you give up something. It kind of, I don't know, for some reason I thought of that one. I know. Mm. But like the love they had for each other, they basically almost lied. It's not a lie, but like <laughs> my mother had told me if she had known early on before they got married that she wouldn't have married him. Um, but she always loved him. Mm. And um, and he was telling and so she was letting him know that. And he, I know that for him, the most important thing is that about the marriage is that my mother loved him so much and he had had such a brutal childhood and arrests and firings during the lavender scare or the that time for federal mm -hmm. workers and throughout it all I never heard my mother criticize my father wow. never never wow. so there was that love mm -hmm. and it was really hard for me to you know have that make sense until I saw that, I saw this last scene, mm. and they just, they, they so appreciated each other. My mother grew up without a dad, and my dad was a lot older than her, so he kind of replaced that. He was very fatherly to her. Mm -hmm. She was very childlike, like me, and mm. um, yeah, anyway, I know, I know. I cry all the time, Brit, but still. <laughs> <laughs> Tears are welcome here and celebrated. You know, we're all such complex mixtures of so much and it's hard yeah. to pin us down. And a lot of these questions often come down to the moment in which they are asked as to, as opposed to any foundational truth that persists throughout our lives. So it's like, you know, on any given day, an answer might be yes or no. Would I have married? Would I have done this? Would I have stayed with them or, or whatever? But I guarantee you, guarantee you there are hundreds thousands millions of guys out there who identify as straight wrestling with same-sex desires and live in abject terror of anybody else knowing yeah and 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 you know maybe given the freedom to truly express themselves they would identify as gay or bi or pan or whatever um, you know, who knows? Um, but because of the brutality of our primitive culture, they feel they cannot afford it. And so they stay oh. trapped. And that's one of the beautiful things of the book is because you paint a picture of so much joy, you create space and hope for people from all sorts of with all sorts of different lived experience. You know, and I was thinking for the queer community, for those of us who are um uh, openly um, part of that community. We're so, like I said earlier, we're so 
often so self-involved in our personal journeys of liberation, equity, joy, that we sometimes forget those people we leave in our wake. And that's not our fault. The blame always go back, goes back to the people and structures of straight supremacy that destroy any differences that don't fit its agenda. And, you know, in your book, you paint such a vivid picture of the cost associated with keeping secrets, but also the cost associated with disclosing secrets. Like you said earlier, this tangled web that all of a sudden you guys had, because now it was there's triangulation, who knows what, when and how, and, you know, and even when we freely express our authentic selves. And in particular, I was struck by the honest portrait you painted of your dad's final years living his life as an out gay man and the surprising costs on your personal life. Um, that really struck me. I'd never thought of it from that perspective. And I guess I, my question to you, Laura, and, and please feel free to speak openly, is what would you like queer people to understand about the experience of loving us, particularly in our brutal society of straight supremacy? What does it cost you? What is it, you know, what, what do you wish we would know about your journey? It's interesting because I know so many gay people now, and I work with a lot of gay people and trans and bi and um you know i just i tend to love almost everyone or i find something to love in almost everyone not everyone (laughs) 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 um i just i from the time i was a little girl like so little maybe three but probably more like four. If I ever saw anyone hurt someone, it would hurt me terribly. Like, mm. how did I know that when I was four? You know? And so I've, I've just always um, looked for the wounded, I think, or the, you know, the mistreated. And um, one thing my grandmother, I had beautiful grandparents too. And my grandmother, we would celebrate Christmas at her house, Christmas Eve every year on her, at her house. Um, on the San Francisco Peninsula and uh, lots of cousins then, you know, it was the fifties, the baby boom, everyone had four or six kids or whatever. And there were these little boy cousins of mine who were just so energetic and just, they'd always end up probably too much sugar or whatever. And they'd start, you know, fighting or throwing things. And my grandmother was very proper, very kind, but very proper. And everything in her house was very tidy (laughs) and, I was sitting next to her and I was like looking up at her, you know, I maybe was seven, eight, looking up at her, like, what's she going to do with these, these rowdy little boy cousins <laughs> who are like throwing things all over her house. And, um, and I, I, I think I, I asked her something or I said, I, I, I commented on it and she goes, that's okay, Lori. They're just having a hard time. Oh, wow. Or they're just having a hard day, something like that. Ugh. And I thought, oh, I got that gift when I was seven. Wow. To, to reframe things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a beautiful gift of modeling empathy, to, especially to a young person where your brain is a sponge and you just absorb it straight away. And yeah, it just comes right in. <laughs> yeah, it could have been the opposite. In so many families, it's, you know, you, the, the response would have been one of blame or shame or embarrassment or anger, and then you internalize that. So that's such a, a beautiful gift. You know, one of the things I found interesting about your book 
is that you dedicate it to your parents, not just your dad. And, you know, one of my absolute favorite aspects of it is that you refuse to let your mom's story get lost in the shuffle. And that would have been so easy given the nature of the subject matter. But she's got a voice, too, as do your siblings, in part because this book is about so much more than your father's sexual orientation. Like I keep saying, it's about a family's love and all the incredible ups and downs you experience as a result And so, Laura, my question is, what do you wish you could have told your mom about this book? And what was it like for you to grow up in a mixed orientation marriage? I just wish I was able to have more conversations with her about it. She didn't want to talk about it. She kept trying, you know. She was a very, very sweet person. And um, she never wanted to say a critical word about my dad. I mean, I don't know if I ever heard a critical word, ever. And mm. um, I know my my family is. <laughs> um, but a few times I would, you know, kind of push, <laughs> and uh, she said, "Oh, we'll have that talk. We'll have that talk one day." And towards the end of her life, she says, I'm, I want to take you out for lunch and your sister. Um, and I want to just let talk to you about some things. And it turned out we never had that talk. Mm-hmm. And I think she wanted to take it to her grave that she didn't want to burden us by her thinking that she was unhappy or that things were hard from her. She would never say anything unkind about my father ever. Right. And um, she didn't. She didn't want to burn. She never wanted to burden her children. Um, So I don't know what that story would have been. Yeah. I I cannot help but wonder, not to get in her head, um, I can't help but wonder if she was afraid of even inadvertently shaping your opinion of your father and maybe by sharing her Um, pain. Yes. Actually, she alluded to that over the years Hmm. um, because she always said she didn't have a father. Yeah. And she wanted us to have a father. Mm. And she said, you kids, your, your, your father was so good to your, you kids. And it was like, and she was like a child too, maybe the fifth child, you know, um, that father figure, she never wanted to tarnish him in our eyes. She would never do that. I bet in her eyes, that was the most precious gift she could give you. I'm glad we, you brought this up, Britt, because I, you know, I, I yearned for that talk with her, but who knows what it might have been, you know, and mostly I feel protective of her now, like good for her. She, she took care of things, how she wanted them done. And she lived a happy life. I mean, she was sang in choir. She um, was a photographer. She traveled. She, um, I mean, she was determined to be happy. Right. <laughs> well, and engaged in society. She was in the stream of engaged. life. She wasn't, you know, there's the caricatures and tropes of women of that era just kind of being cloistered in their own homes. And she wasn't like that at all. No. <laughs> so yeah. funny. She was um, singing in the church choir in San Carlos on the peninsula um, when my father was a uh, uh, stay uh, in the war or he had just been uh, enlisted in the war right at the beginning of world war ii and um they met at a a a uso dance my mother had red hair and he he noticed that and she said she loved his big blue eyes and his white teeth 
they crack me up. Anyway, <laughs> um, she had, she was 17, high school senior, and she was already in the church choir. And I think that's really why she liked church. She liked church a lot because she mm -hmm. got to sing. And um, when they finally made the move um, up to where my husband and I were living and she had to leave the church, she was very sad about that. But um, what I didn't realize is she was the longest serving choir member in the history of that church oh, wow. on the peninsula. Wow. She had sung for 50 years. And uh, wow. yeah, she, she got so much joy out of that. Yeah, she made her own joy. She did. Yeah, this. I'm so glad we're having this talk because I was sitting here thinking like, it's such a good companion to your book because your book is searing. I mean, your book is um, lays bare um, what you experienced in life, and and a lot of it um, isn't you know wasn't always joyful. And 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 now you you speak with such tenderness about your family, and it's it's a great tribute and compliment. So I'm so glad we, we're getting to have this talk. And, you know, I, what I told my husband about your book, um, without giving anything away to him, and I certainly won't give it away now, I'll let you lead on what you disclose, but your book, and try not to cry, your book ends in the most beautiful way possible. <laughs> and it, it really caught me off guard in the most healing and cathartic way. You know, I read that section, the ending of your book as a benediction and a prayer to your father, your mother, yourself, and all the lives torn apart over the centuries by straight supremacy, by people forced to live lives other than they wanted to, the forced to be in the closet. And you give, in the book, you give your father the most precious possible present that I could think of. Like I said, without any spoilers for future readers, or you can disclose whatever you want to. Um, how did it feel to you to be able to offer him this impossible, lovely, tender present? My dad was a storyteller. And he um, he often talked about, he wanted to, he had a story that he wanted to, he had a story in him he wanted to write. And um, after he retired, he um Start, he took a writing class at a junior college down here on the peninsula. And he was with all these young people. And he was very insecure about his writing, although he was an excellent writer. And um, so they were asked to write a story, and he did. And he was nervous about what kind of a grade he was going to get. And I guess we, we never lose that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking that. And... Uh, his, he went up and accepted his paper from his teacher and it was, had an A on it. And he's, he said, I was, he was, I was so surprised. I, I told my teacher, I said, I, I thought I had a story to write or no, something about that, but, um, how he, he wanted to have, he didn't know if he had a story right. in him to tell. And he said, you have a story, Ralph. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he repeated that to me so many times. Um, I forget that wasn't the exact same wording the teacher it was said. Close. But, it was oh, close. Yeah. It was, yes, you do. You do have something to tell. Yeah. And, but he never followed up on that. And my brother and I went through his computer like, did he write it? Is yeah. it buried deep in the hard drive? We never found it. And so 
it's to me, it's like my dad would be so happy (laughs) to see this story about him and our family. I mean, he would just be over the moon. I know that. Yeah. yeah. And and you, you, yeah, it's like completing a life stream for him and on his behalf. And, and then with that ending, um, wow, it was just incredibly beautiful. You know, like I said earlier, there are so many people out there suffering today. We just know that there are, um, for whatever reason, either they're in the closet, their loved ones are in the closet around any number of topics or issues. I was wondering like what hope you can give families in and of mixed orientation marriages, where can they turn for support? Do you have me? And we can put links, of course, in the show notes and stuff for everybody. And we'll definitely put links to Laura's website and where you can buy her book and everything. But, uh, do, you know, what what would you advise to people who are suffering today? Like, where can they turn for hope? You know, when you live long enough, you realize that, that things go in cycles. And we feel like, you know, this is a pretty bad one we're in. Yeah, um, It's been bad before, but... This is a really cruel one. Yeah. And um, I I keep telling people that there were times when people lost hope in the past that it would ever get better, that we're just descending into this hellish nightmare. And um, But mostly it's always gotten better. Um, I surrounded myself with these young gals Uh, mostly young, much younger, but we did have like four generations in my living room. (laughs) Um, This talking, I didn't know anyone who had a gay father or a closeted, certainly not a closeted gay dad that they knew about. How did you find them? Well, there's this Facebook group (laughs) that's called the Gay Dad Project, and which is a weird name, but um, there's, anyway, I, I somehow connected up with the woman who, they're lovely people. I still stay in touch with them. And, um, we started getting together and then I went to a book reading at the GLBT museum, historical society in the Castro and saw, um, Alicia Abbott, you know, her, she wrote Fairyland Mm -hmm. and uh, about her dad. Uh, she grew up in the Haight-Ashbury and he died of AIDS Mm -hmm. and Sophia Coppola. I'll just put a plug in for that. She, she made a movie out of it and it just premiered at Telluride. Oh, wow. I'm mean, Sun, Sundance. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's going to be at Provincetown, I think, this month. Oh, and nice. um, so I went to a book reading from her, of her. She wrote about her dad. And uh, it's called Fairyland. And so is the movie. And she had written something in my book, uh, which I still have. It was 10 years ago about, you know, something like, something about our dads, you know, our dads. And she lost her dad very young. And then I, so I met her and then I met other young people. They're all women that um, just happened to be women that I met. And we would compare notes. They also, um, there's a group called the Recollectors. And they, these are all the children of fathers who died of AIDS. Mm -hmm. And, um, they have a, a group and they, we did a memorial at, in Golden Gate Park. Sorry. Oh. Uh, um, 
to the, you know, there's a memorial in Golden Gate Park. There's a memorial, AIDS Memorial Park, and then there's a monument, and their father's names are written in them. And um, and it's interesting because I'm much older than all of them because their dads, die, you know, died. Yeah. They're they're the age of my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and and so I'm the only I'm kind of the outlier in that group. Um. But I feel like my, I always feel like, I feel like my job is just to comfort, you know, these children. I mean, because my dad comforted gay men who were dying of AIDS in the seven, in the early 80s. And he said, you know, there was nothing he could do but just hold their hands. And they had no family to come mm -hmm. to see them. And I thought, you know, maybe one of them was the father of one of, these friends of mine, but I, I think just for me, it was just sharing stories and this, cause I was like, I was clueless. Like yeah. <laughs> my dad came out to me, like, how does this work? <laughs> yeah. And who knows what, and exactly. all this, and we all speak a similar language. So I would just, those, those monthly meetings, they went on for years and that got me through my book. Mm, and some of them I've written books. That's really beautiful. I was struck because you you mentioned the age gap in that um, support group, and um, I suspect you know many guys out there took their secrets with them to the graves and never disclosed it, and um, who knows how they lived and and survived. Um, and I was struck by how much your dad loved you to share this with you. He did, and the courage it must have taken in that moment, even where you lived in the you know, the holy grail of the gay universe from some aspects, but when you're closeted, it might as well be on the moon. And so the act of courage and love in that moment to start this journey is really breathtaking. I know. I, I'm really, I'm really, I'm surprised I asked the question, then I'm surprised. He <laughs> and when he got the funniest look on his face when I asked, you know, if he was, had ever been unfaithful to my mom, because of course I thought so, because he was very handsome. He was a good dancer. He was a good cook. <laughs> took care of the kids. All my mother's girlfriends were jealous of him. I was saying, oh, he's not like all the other husbands. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and when I asked him, he just, he did that. He would just take a mindful pause and he just looked at me wow. and then he said, honey, I'm, I'm gay. I, you could have just like, what? Dad? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I'm so glad that he had me to bear witness all those years, um, he and I were always close before he disclosed that, and we remain close till the day he died. That's so beautiful, and it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and and to speak with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and for most of all for writing this book, which is going to help so many people out there. I just can't wait for everyone to read it. Thank you, Brett. Well, listeners, you have made it through another episode of Not Going Quietly. We're so happy you did and came on this journey with us. We could not do it without you. This is a podcast for outraged optimists and heartbroken healers all over the world. And we're here with you and for you. Thank you so much. Until next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Not Going Quietly with co-hosts Jonathan Beale and Britt East. Thanks so much for joining us on this wild ride as we explore ways to help everyone leap into life with a greater sense of clarity, passion, purpose, and joy. Check out our show notes for links, additional information, and episodes located on your favorite podcast platform.